Welcome to another episode of New Books and Terrorism and Organized Crime. Today, we have Ian Grillo, who is on the line from Mexico City, and we're talking about his new book, El Narco, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency. Hi, Ian. How are you? Fine, thank you. How are you doing? Good, good, good. We're over here in Brisbane from my side, and you're in Mexico City. And uh, this is probably the first time I've actually spoken to someone in Mexico City. So um, how is everything over there at the moment? I suppose we're going to really talk about that as we discuss the book. Um, sure, yeah. Well, it's, uh, it's in the evening now in the, in the rainy season, a bit of a rainy day yeah. in Mexico City. Yeah, uh, well, with traffic uh, kind of getting towards rush hour traffic time. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, but, yeah, all, all good. All good. We're having a wonderful Brisbane winter's day where we're going to hit 27 degrees Celsius. So all good here as well. So, Ian, let's start off just by um, if you could explain how you ended up in Mexico City, because as you can tell by your accent, you're obviously not from Mexico, and how you end up writing this book. Well, I'm uh, originally from Brighton in the UK. I came to Mexico in 2000, uh, keen to do journalism in Latin America, and I was very attracted to to Latin America uh, by the culture and also seeing some of the the movies from back in the 80s like Salvador and, and hearing about the courage of the civil wars in Central America back in the 80s. Uh, when I came to Mexico in 2000, it was a very different narrative, a very different uh, set of events going on. We were talking about the kind of emergence of democracy in all these countries, the end of military dictatorships, the end of guerrilla movements, and then this kind of 21st century uh, end of history, you know, new, new bright capitalism all around the world. Uh, and so I came to Mexico and uh, back in 2000 uh, and then became interested in drug cartels and the drug trade. Uh, partly growing up in Brighton, England is, is a place with a very high consumption of drugs. Uh, back in the 80s, there's a lot of heroin there, uh, a lot of ecstasy in the 90s and, and cocaine and so forth. Uh, and knowing several young uh, men or, or teenagers who, who died of heroin overdoses back then. So arriving in Mexico and Latin America, uh, which were countries which produced and trafficked drugs, I was very interested in this relationship between communities like where I came from, where there's very high consumption of drugs, and communities which were involved in trafficking and producing drugs. Uh, and it's very interesting to me, this kind of international phenomenon, part of the global uh, trade, the kind of globalization um, is the drug trade, um, but uh, is among different countries, and, and obviously all politics is local. Uh, and politicians have, have struggled to really contain this. Uh, and as I covered this drug trade and and uh, started to look, you know, follow the tentacles to the places where drugs were first began, growing grown as opium poppies uh, to make heroin, uh, the meth labs importing the ingredients, going to Colombia to look at the color cocaine was produced, uh, eventually meeting traffickers, meeting uh, assassins. Uh, meeting criminal lawyers, working with drug traffickers and so forth, and getting close to the cartels. And as I was doing this, there became a uh, a real surge of violence from about 2006 onwards when President Felipe Calderón took power and declared a national war or national offensive on drug cartels and sent 96,000 soldiers uh, against them and uh, 16,000 Marines and 39,000 federal police. Uh, and when you had these, you know, offensive armed forces, the cartels hit back. 
and you had this explosion of violence and really a low-intensity war erupting in Mexico, which now has claimed more than 70,000 lives, as well as, as, well as there being more than 20,000 cases of, of people have disappeared. Uh, so I was continuing to cover this, and there was big interest from many international news outlets, uh, from uh, Australian TV to British TV to Japanese TV to all the big American networks and, and magazines and so forth. Uh, and then often uh, people would end up uh, coming to me to, to ask them to produce stuff with them and news reports, short documentaries and that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, and I realized that it's a, it's a story I couldn't cover or a story I couldn't tell often in these short news reports, in these short articles or even magazine articles. It was so big. Uh, and so uh, I, I posed this book and, and Bloomsbury, who are the, the same publishers who, who published Harry Potter, uh, that picks up on this and and and, and bought the idea and support me to go ahead with this project, which in fact the book is actually called, uh, as you say, it's called Narco, uh, Inside Mexico's Criminal Insurgency is the, is the US title. The Australian and the British title is actually uh, El Narco, The Bloody Rise of Mexican Drug Cartels. A uh, bit of a different different take there. And it's also been published in, in Poland, uh, in France. Uh, Italian rights have been sold uh, and in, in, in many other markets so like India and so forth English-speaking markets I mean it's quite um, suspicious that you're on the same publisher as Harry Potter because the story that's in this book seems like a fantasy land for someone certainly from a western country like Australia or the United States it's just so strange because we would tell the listeners what you're actually covering here is not just the history you're actually talking about the culture of what's going on in Mexico with this particular change in, in the last 10 years or 20 years that we're talking about? Well, there, there's certainly been this, this massive change uh, in Mexico. Really, uh, um, the one key was, was the move in Mexico from a one-party state, which uh, there was one party in power, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, from 1929 till 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it ran, at times, every single state you know, in, in its heydays, it had almost, you know, every single mayor in the country and the president's office. And so really kind of one-party system compared to the Soviet Union in some ways with its hold and power, but also it was called by one um, Latin American Nobel Prize winner, uh, Manuel Vargas Llosa. It was dubbed the perfect dictatorship in that it could hold onto power but still have elections every six years, uh, maintain the facade of democracy, change the person at the top, and have you know quite a functional country in many ways, and there was a big change uh, to a multi-party system, uh, which we've we've had since since two thousand with a change in the presidency, uh, and really since the late nineties uh, in various states. And so you've got a, a system with 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 all kinds of different power bases, and that that's part really of uh, of uh, tragically uh, a similar thing happened when the Soviet Union collapsed. You started to get this. This great uh, monolith of power collapsed or, 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 or broke down or fragmented. Uh, and within that, many people who worked in security forces or for the state uh, defected and started working for drug cartels, started working as mercenaries. Uh, and many uh, things before being the realms of the state, like shaking down business, the state had foreseen you know, it's right, you know, it could always shake down a business for, for, for money. Uh, the cartels moved into that area as well. Uh, and they started really challenging police, challenging the army uh, for the, over the monopoly of violence in parts of the country and really became kind of criminal warlords 
Uh, and uh, as well as that, uh, as you point out, there's also a, a kind of rise in the culture of, of, of the drug cartels, of drug traffickers, uh, from uh, a whole, whole music genre subsidized by drug cartels. I mean, you know, literally, they, they pay for these songs to be made called narco ballads, drug ballads, uh, and also uh, a kind of a weird religion or, or quasi-religious beliefs funded as well by drug cartels from uh, uh, something called La Santa Muerte, which is the Holy Death, which is uh, also venerated by some ordinary people, a kind of skull, skeletal, grim reaper figure, but many drug traffickers will venerate her, as they refer to her, um, uh, to another group, uh, one group called La Familia, um, Michoacana, who's founder, known as the maddest one, and Mas Loco even wrote his own kind of Bible and was a kind of a preacher as well as a drug trafficker. So some, some very uh, strange uh, changes in Mexican society. And like you say, some, the whole thing can be very surreal. Uh, Mexico is a very surreal country. Uh, uh, Dali, Salvador Dali, was said to have said that when he came to Mexico, he, he didn't like it because it was even more surreal than his paintings. <laughs> so, so, so it's uh, definitely a strange place for, for many people who, who live here or from here also find it quite a strange, surreal place. The rise of the drug cartels, too, is, coincides with the fall of the drug cartels in Colombia, from your story as well. So the, the American pressure on Colombia pretty much creates a new market or a, the opportunity for the Mexican cartels to pick up the slack from the Colombian cartels as they're coming apart. Is that correct? Hey, yeah, this is exactly right, yeah. And, and, and people, analysts of the drug trade, talk about the balloon effect uh, as the drug trade being like one big balloon, and when you put pressure on one part of the air, Simply rushes somewhere else. Uh, and that's very true. Uh, when uh, the Colombian, major Colombian cartels collapsed in the 90s with the killing of Pablo Escobar in 1993 and then the arrest of the leaders of the Cali cartel uh, by 1997, uh, the Mexicans grew in power and uh, the, the big money from cocaine moved from Colombia to Mexico. So the Colombians. Uh, became simply suppliers of the Mexicans. They would sell them the, the bricks, uh, the kilo bricks of, of cocaine uh, for some two or three thousand dollars, and then the Mexicans would move to the U.S., where it could be sold wholesale for some thirty thousand dollars, and then sold in the street for some a hundred thousand dollars or even or even more. Uh, then the Colombians, uh, in some ways, uh, were happy to retreat from the business because the U.S. were putting pressure on them, as you say. Uh, but also they saw the growing market in Europe. They thought, well, we can still unload this to the Mexicans for a couple of thousand dollars and we can focus on Europe where we're getting paid in euros and where the European demand for cocaine is is, is going through the roof, especially in England, uh, Spain and, uh, and Italy. Yep. But of course, the market in Mexico, the production market isn't just co- uh, cocaine, it's a full suite of drugs, effectively. It's marijuana, it's meth, it's heroin as well. Yeah, that's correct. The big four drugs, uh, marijuana, uh, cocaine, crystal meth, and heroin, are all handled by Mexican cartels. They, so they buy the cocaine from the Colombians or from other places in South America. They, they become massive producers of crystal meth. And this gets back into the balloon effect again. Crystal meth used to be produced mainly in the United States itself, often by biker gangs and so forth. Uh, cooking it up in bathtubs or you know on these uh, mobile places in the desert like you see in, uh, in Breaking Bad. Uh, 
but uh, when there was laws in the United States to try and crack down on this and crack down on the uh, uh, the precursor ingredients uh, like suephedrine, these different chemicals they would buy to make into crystal meth, they started clamping down on those that moved down to Mexico. In Mexico, they would create these super labs and import from all around the world these these precursors and uh, and have these massive super labs where you see you know, in, in industrial-scale production of, of crystal meth. Uh, and heroin, again, as he says, has been produced for a long time. Uh, black tar and Mexican mud, as it's known as. And marijuana is produced in absolutely colossal quantities as well. Uh, from In a large swathes of Mexico, uh, you can see uh, big marijuana plantations. Yeah. So how about um, we next move to a, a quick scan of who the major groups are and then talk about the plazas and, and the war over the access to the plazas. And what the plazas are, I suppose. Uh, well, the, the major groups uh, in, in Mexico, when you get deeper into the cartels, you can see them often more as federations rather than top-down organizations. I think that's quite important. Uh, often, uh, you know, we think of uh, or, or the way that the, the media often paint these cartels or, or the DEA paint these cartels trying to make their cases is, like uh, you know, companies as we'd understand uh, a company like um, you know a, a very top-down company like, like Microsoft or something, um, but really they're more uh, federations. You often see so you can often see, see the the gangsters one like franchises of them uh, and, and sharing resources and sharing kind of brand name. Uh, but in Mexico now you have the two biggest groups, or the, the biggest group of all is the, the Sinaloa cartel. Uh, which is so a big federation of gangsters and traffickers, uh, assassins and so forth, with its roots all the way back almost 100 years to when uh, the United States first started restricting opium in 1914. Uh, there was opium come from Sinaloa State in the northwest of Mexico to the U.S. So in some ways it's like Sicily, uh, like Sicily is to the Italian uh, organized crime. So... Uh, Sinaloa is the Mexican organized crime. And uh, one of their, their top guys uh, is Joaquim El Chapo Guzman, who was uh, for a while on the Forbes billionaire list at the, 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 the rate of $1.00 billion, although uh, I and many others uh, have serious doubts about their, their, uh, their science for calculating that figure. And he's since been taken away from that because they realized it was kind of bad science and, and maybe morally not a good idea to put drug traffickers on their list. Uh, and then on the other side, you have a group called the Setas, which uh, are very different. They're a much younger organization. Uh, they were uh, founded in 1998 um, as a small group of enforcers for other drug cartels known as the Gulf Cartel. Um, but they grew and grew. They were first founded by 14 former members of the Mexican military uh, who, who defected to join the cartel. Uh, and they grew and grew and eventually broke away from the Gulf Cartel between about 2007 and 2010. 2010, they finally cut the links and went to full-scale war with the Gulf Cartel and spread uh, uh, it, like uh, in, a, in a very startling way across Mexico into Central America, in places like Guatemala. And as well as trafficking drugs, they did a huge amount of extortion, kidnapping, piracy, theft of oil, human smuggling, human trafficking. Uh, and all kinds of other crimes, and really raised the bar in terms of the violence. Uh, was, there so, was there a leader caught recently? Yes. Uh, uh, they, well, they, 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 their leader 
known as Z3, uh, who was a leader for a long time, the executioner, was supposedly killed in October last year, although his body was then stolen back by his people, which then raises the big doubts about, oh, my God, you know, we haven't got the corpse. Uh, and that, then, then uh, his second in command, his right-hand man, or, or uh, he, the, the top lieutenant known as Z40, uh, Miguel Trevino, was uh, arrested in July. Right. Uh, and uh, was is is now in pr- in prison awaiting trial in Mexico. Right, right. Uh, besides these two major groups, uh, there's also another. Uh, depending on how you define cartels, another seven or so other important cartels in Mexico, uh, uh, including you know one which is getting a lot of attention is the Knights Templar cartel. You know, with with yeah. strange taking the name from the. Uh, the defenders of, of, of Jerusalem in the Crusades, this kind of Catholic order of knights, uh, the Knights Templar, who are big in, in, in moving crystal meth among things. Um, but you've also got other groups. Um, There's still the old Juarez Cartel, Tijuana Cartel, Golf Cartel, uh, uh, Beltran Lever Organization, uh, uh, Jalisco New Generation, the other important groups in parts of Mexico. Uh, with power, with, who have often deals with the Stilocotel or the Setas or other complicated system of alliances spreading around the country. Yep, yep. And what about the plazas? I mean, the plazas are their me- mechanism to get things into the United States or into Mexico from other places. Yeah, that's right. The uh, the term plaza, uh, obviously, is referring to a square, la plaza, uh, was used uh, before to talk about the jurisdiction of a particular police command. Uh, the police command was have. Uh, a federal police command would divide into the plazas of their of their particular jurisdictions. Uh, like I would say, their, their plaza was Tijuana. They were operating, you know, controlling Tijuana, and then it got kind of expropriated by the the drug cartels uh, to be their own place they would control. Like which drug cartel controls which plaza, and this is particularly important when you get to the U.S. Mexico drug trade. What's different from the U.S. Mexico drug trade as opposed to uh, the drug trade in many other parts of the, of the world, is you have this real flashpoint of the border uh, where, where you have this 2,000-mile border where almost all the drugs are passing through into the United States and you create real bottlenecks that are worth incredible amounts of money, billions of dollars. So whereas the drug trade in many parts of the world can be very disparate and money is moving here and there and drugs are moving here and there like a strange kind of octopus, in the Mexico-U.S. trade, you have this flashpoint, a place like Juarez, Tijuana, Nuevo Laredo, a city is worth billions of dollars to drug traffickers. These plazas become places, territories, which they fight over. You know, who can control the plaza? Whoever can control that plaza can control billions of dollars. And that pretty much leads into the major conversation everyone's having is the number of people who are dying over there at the moment. They were always hearing about Juarez, but it's not just Juarez where the killing's taking place. So how big is this war that's going on? How many people are dying and what are they actually fighting over? Well, it's always difficult in any war to know the real numbers of dead, and in particularly in, in a conflict like in Mexico where many people even deny there's an armed conflict going on, so this is simply a, a criminal problem like uh, the U.S. suffered in, uh, in, in the Bronx or whatever. Uh, uh, but there, there's been reasonable counts uh, done by both the media and the government uh, intelligence services. They've 
try to make estimates uh, and calculate the number of people who seem to be killed by either organized crime, by the cartels, or by the security forces fighting the cartels. The security forces, the army, the federal police, the marines have killed thousands of people as well. Uh, and, and you see that, you know, the Mexico, before this, this virus exploded, there was only in 2007 about uh, 7,000 uh, murders in Mexico. Uh, and you compare that to 2011, for example, there was about 27,000 Mex- murders in Mexico. So you know, a really huge increase. Uh, but uh, some of the, the reasonable counts have counted uh, around 60 to 70,000 people who have died in this cartel-related violence. In the last six years, it's sort of like the death rate in Syria. It's quite amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, Syria's happened short time, but yeah, certainly it's comparable to to many war zones around the world. Uh, many wars that have happened, many declares, and many of the civil wars in Central America. Uh, it's it's not as uh, as intense uh, as, as as other wars as as the, as the you know high high intensity wars, the low intensity armed conflict, which happens in certain parts of Mexico in certain times. So you still have in Mexico a very varying situation. Uh, you have in Yucatan Peninsula, for example, in the Yucatan state, which is close to where many people go on holiday to Cancun and so forth, uh, it has the same murder rate as Belgium. It has a fairly low murder rate. And really, there's, you, know, you, you don't you want to wear an armed conflict there. In Mexico City, in the capital where I'm at now, right now, you have a similar murder rate to Boston in the United States. It's not as bad as New Orleans. It's not as bad as Detroit. Uh, However, you still have, uh, I mean, right now, uh, Guerrero is a very you know, bad state. Uh, Acapulco, you have in, in Acapulco, uh, uh, one of the worst murder rates of, of any city in the world. I mean, it's uh, you know, murder rates that are um, extremely high. Uh, and, uh, and still other places, and this, is a, this violence moves around, the flashpoint moves around, the Michoacan state, Tamaulipas state. Uh, and it's a violence which often involves uh, large armed groups. You can have armed groups of as many as 50 people or in some firefights there's been you know, hundreds of people uh, engaging the military. With large weapons too. Yeah, with, 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 with the weaponry, uh, the biggest killer in, in this conflict has been the automatic rifle, uh, the AK-47 or, or, or the versions of the Kalashnikov also because it's been the AR-15. Uh, but as well as that, many fragmentation grenades uh, and uh, also uh, grenade, uh, rocket propelled grenades uh, are also being launched and used, uh, bell-driven machine guns, 50 calibers, uh, and that kind of thing. So, again, the kind of uh, uh, weaponry often used by insurgent forces, by guerrilla forces around the world. It's not so much uh, airplanes and, and tanks fighting uh, as these kind of small guerrilla weapons being used. I think we will spend the rest of the time talking about the really quite bizarre cultural aspects of this and how this has flowed out through the community. We'll start off with the narco ballots. I'd never seen one. Um, I always assumed they were very small-scale things, but I went to a lecture recently at a conference where a guy was playing a few, and they're very high-quality production, some of them. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, well, some of the bands are, are on uh, major record labels in the United States uh, as well. Many of these uh, groups are based in the U.S. now. Really? Uh, yeah, uh, in, in Los Angeles, also a, a big place, a huge audience among Mexicans living in the U.S. and Mexican-Americans uh, mostly. The tradition of the ballad itself 
uh, has, has you know, historical roots in Mexico. You can take this back to the, the balladeers who told uh, stories about the Mexican War of Independence or later the Mexican Revolution and very many famous ballads about the Mexican Revolution, about Pancho Villa and Emiliano Zapata and these people who fought the Mexican Revolution. And they were seen as a way of, kind of telling stories, a folk way of exchanging news, of talking about figures. And what an interesting music form in that sense. Uh, in, there was one group, Los Tigres del Norte, one of the founders of, of, of this genre, who uh, formed in the late 60s and in the early 70s uh, recorded, started recording uh, ballads on, on, on vinyl and, and kind of bringing in like an electric bass and a kind of pumping drum and they're kind of making this uh, kind of new sound, which kind of defined really from then the, the, the corridor sound. Uh, and, and one of their first uh, narco ballads uh, was uh, back in 1973, I believe, uh, uh, telling the story uh, of a woman who uh, carried some marijuana in car tires into the United States and then had this shootout when it was delivered. Uh, and then later on, you know, that, that ballad became very popular. And later on, you know, moving forward to the, to the 90s, when you had things like hip-hop in the United States, you started getting uh, much more uh, kind of radical uh, drug ballad figures like Chalino Sanchez, who was more like the kind of Tupac Shakur of, uh, of drug ballads, who was quite a crazy figure who'd been in prison and, and even a concert in the United States. Um, somebody got a gun out and tried to shoot him and he pulled out a gun and started firing back and there was a big <laughs> shootout at a concert. Uh, he was eventually murdered in Mexico in Sinaloa State. He's from Sinaloa. Uh, and he kind of defined the hardcore kind of gangster drug ballad sound. And then moving on now uh, to the more recent conflict you've had, you know, super hardcore bands. Uh, one I profile in the book, their name is El Grupo Cartel de Sinaloa. So that's he called you know, the Cartel de Sinaloa group. Um, and, you know, no, no, difficulty guessing which cartel they're kind of sympathetic to um and you know they, they're very tied very close and the cartels would actually pay these uh people to write songs about them a gangster will say i want you to write a song about me uh write about how i'm a great drug trafficker how i move loads of uh heroin how i move loads of cocaine how i make loads of money how i've got loads of people who find me with guns and uh, and these people will charge okay i, I will charge you Ten thousand dollars or five thousand dollars to write this song about you, and then uh, you know the, these uh, bands also often play at their parties, play at these lavish parties of, of drug traffickers, and uh, and as well as being uh, you know still very popular with people around the country. And is it offence? Uh, I mean, I personally don't think it's worth trying to censor the music. There's there's an effort now to try and censor this music in Mexico. Very hard to play on the radio. They recently find some promoters uh, in Mexico for having a, a, a concert of narco corridor. Uh, and I, I think trying to censor it is not necessarily the answer. I don't think censoring music will necessarily stop violence. I think the, the root cause can be found in other places. Yep. Yep. So, so the support for it, is this very much like a Robin Hood type of thing? Yeah, that, 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 that's certainly true. And, and that's a, a big uh, theme I discuss a lot in the book is, is, is how drug cartels are seen within these communities and one truth uh, unfortunate truth is that to many people in these areas they see drug trafficking and the cartels as being 
a career choice in life as being one of the few options available to them. Uh, and some of these figures try and hold themselves up as being Robin Hood figures who are only taking drug money you know, from the Americans and they're you know, giving out presents to orphanages and this kind of thing, uh, giving kind of supporting charity. Some of that image has been stained in recent years with a level of violence that's happened. Yeah. Um, people have started to realize, well, maybe they're not really rebels fighting the system as much as being oppressive criminal warlords in their own right. Uh, you know, they've started to become almost an authority themselves, uh, but still they like to portray themselves or see themselves often as the kind of a desperado, if not the good guys, at least the kind of, uh, the kind of uh, lovable bad guys. Yeah. And there is a drug market in Mexico. I mean, there are local there's, customers. There is. There's a growing drug market in Mexico. Uh, there's a lot of use of crack cocaine, uh, a lot of use in heroin in certain parts, uh, and a lot of use crystal meth in certain parts, and obviously a large use of marijuana. Uh, so, yeah, there's a growing uh, market and use of drugs here as well, uh, and that's going to uh, that has big implications uh, for how to deal with drugs here in the future. Let's change to the religious side now. You've touched on it earlier, but um, there's the normal church religious process that's going on in the community, and then this brand new religious one you're talking about, the, the ones that are the religious justifications for some of the cartels. That's correct, yeah. There's various strands of the narco religion. Uh, one in Sinaloa is this folk saint uh, called Jesus Malverde, Jesus Malverde. Uh, who's a folk saint who, who supposedly a, band, a bandit killed um, just before the uh, outbreak of the Mexican Revolution in 1909. And he's, he had a shrine to him in the Sinaloa state capital, which many drug traffickers do venerate. And, and many of them see him as a, a man of the people uh, and uh, uh, you know, pray to him before uh, trafficking over the border, uh, kind of as many ballads as well, alluding to him, to where him as, as somebody brings wealth and terms of drugs. Uh, then there's this figure, uh, the, the Santa Muerte, the Holy Death, who, who's a, a kind of a, a strange character, this female Grim Reaper, often dressed up in elaborate clothes. Uh, and there's become a real explosion of a folk interest in her, of, of working class Mexicans having shrines, having symbols of the Holy Death, Santa Muerte, and many drug traffickers are among them. Uh, and people who have found uh, shrines to the Santa Muerte in, in houses of various drug traffickers, and, and sometimes with people who have been decapitating victims have been around. Uh, so there's been a lot of, dis- of uh, attacks on on her from the church, Catholic church, saying uh, it's it's high, it's a her- heresy to to follow her. The, the decapitations become quite a theme in, they, in the back. Yeah, they, they do. Yeah, I mean the, the way the violence has been expressed in Mexico has been particularly brutal and. Has really caught the, the world attention. Uh, there's been an enormous amount of, of decapitations, uh, you know, some 400 a year in, in recent years. Rolling uh, heads into nightclubs and restaurants. Yeah, exactly. Rolling heads into nightclubs and restaurants, uh, leaving heads in ice boxes, chopping up uh, bodies, cutting up a uh, face and sewing onto a soccer ball. Uh, all kinds of, uh, of weird stuff. And part of this is is a psychology of trying to sow terror um, for the, the cartels and the soldiers of the cartels, trying to control the places, trying to control the territories. They, 
They see the best way to try and strike terror at the population, try and show themselves as being the uh, the most ruthless, uh, most powerful group there. And, and, and if you strike terror to people, there, then they won't resist, and you can try and effectively control the territory. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's going to happen in the future? I mean, we're at this point now that's been, that's just been growing progressively for the last 20 years. Is it con- going to continue to grow, or is there any action being taken by government to try and reduce it? Well, you've had a couple of things that have happened. Uh, one is that the, this, this great military offensive by the government under Fibicardon came to an end with the uh, with Fibicardon leaving office in December 2012. His party, uh, his, the candidate for his party uh, won third place in the election, so it's a very badly, and the failure of the drug war was part of that. Uh, and this new president came in that the PRI are back in, the Institutional Revolutionary Party, who ruled Mexico for most of the 20th century, are back in power now. Uh, and they've now changed the discourse, changed the dialogue, and said, oh, now we want to just reduce violence, reduce extortion, reduce kidnapping. This whole idea of a war against the cartels has, has kind of come to an end. But they still face the daily reality of armed groups run by cartels, confronting the military, overrunning towns. They're still keeping the military parts of the country and haven't really got a great new idea on, on how to handle this. But we have seen, it seems, a kind of plateauing, at least, of the violence. We saw this ex- explosion and a sharp increase, increase of violence between 2007 and 2011, where every year it was like multiplying. Uh, and around 2010, 2011, uh, you know, things were very scary. Uh, people didn't know where this was going, and now it seems to have plateaued. It seems to have kind of leveled uh, in, in most of the places. We still have a very high level of violence, but it seems to have stopped getting worse and worse. Yeah. Uh, and the government is simply trying to contain it, trying to contain it in certain areas and trying to stop it, setting the agenda of the whole country, trying not to talk about it too much, trying to change the media conversation. And there was something very interesting coming up uh, is, is, a, is a new. Uh, a new a breath in the discussion about the war on drugs uh, which really kick-started uh, in November last year when Washington State and Colorado in the United States legalized marijuana mm. and now we've got in Uruguay a whole country which is poised to legalize marijuana uh, perhaps this kind of domino effect where a whole bunch of countries are going to start legalizing Marijuana, first of all, and a kind of a, a whole new discussion, perhaps, about the war on drugs and about failures of the war on drugs and how the war on drugs has only led to drug wars uh, on the scale of, of Mexico has been you know, one of the most brutal drug wars in history. Mm-hmm. So this could be an interesting discussion we're going to have. We're having now, we're going to be having over the next few years. Perhaps we need to redefine the whole way we deal with drugs, narcotics, uh, find a way which works better and doesn't give billions of dollars to these uh, extremely violent criminal kingpins. Yeah. So it's it's a problem that doesn't have an easy solution. It's not like we just haven't had the person with the political will to go and do this particular thing. There's no straightforward answer to the whole issue of the violence and the drugs in Mexico. There's no magic bullet. Uh, uh, I think, uh, I, I personally think there's three areas we can focus on to try and, and move forward on these three main areas um, as inter- internationally. 
Uh, one is, I think, a rethinking of, of the war on drugs, uh, uh, legalization of marijuana, trying uh, to look at how we can tame more harder drugs through you know, much better rehabilitation and this kind of thing. Uh, second uh, important thing is how can we stop or how can we help communities that have been so marginalized? In Mexico, you know, I've I interviewed some kids in, in, in the book who commit murders for about $85 a murder. Now, you've got to see a real uh, degeneration of, of communities to allow this to happen. Uh, you know, how is it somebody could take a human life for $85, see, you know, teenagers who see nothing, have got no opportunities, only the cartels come to them and offer them something. So there's some interesting projects that's been around Latin America. In Medellin, in Colombia, there was a mayor there uh, who, who tried to revive the city of Medellin, who said we've got to really uh, improve the areas. The most beautiful buildings have to be built in the worst areas of the city. We've got to you know, really try and, you know, you can't just leave, abandon these communities. Uh, and there's some interesting things that come out of Palermo, uh, Sicily, the mayor there on my house as well about how you try and provide communities. So, so many things, kind of social work needs to be done over a long term. And then the third thing is how do you build a justice system which works? I mean, one of the reasons that cartels have killed thousands upon thousands of people is because they get away with murder. Uh, you know, we saw some horrific things in, in Juarez uh, in 2010, there was more than 3,000 homicides, and only about 5% of those were sold. So, sold. even then, we don't really know if they got the right people. So, one in 20. So, so 19 times they're getting away with murder. So, when you have that happening, that's a real problem. So, how can you build a justice system which works? Very, very tough issue in Mexico. Uh, and a very tough issue in many countries around the world. All these issues, I think, in Mexico are important because these are, that reflect many countries around the world. In the Americas, in in, in Africa, in, in in Western Europe, or in Eastern Europe, also in, in, in rich countries. And in rich countries, also see problems as well with marginalisation, with drugs, with organised crime, and so forth. You know, I'm sure in Australia, in the United States, and so forth. Um, but how do you build a justice system which works? Um, how can you have a rule of law? which works. And that's a real tough issue in many countries around the world. How can we have rule of law which works in these places? Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, so you've done all this work. You've written this book, as you said at the beginning. You wrote it as a, uh, an opportunity to put all these ideas together in one place. Are you planning to write another book? or? I am, yes. I'm working on a second book. Uh, now I have a, another contract with the same publishers. Mm. Uh, again, uh, with Harry Potter. Yeah. Um, it helped <laughs> the bills, uh, and this is a, a look at these same issues again, but it, it's, it's also expanding out. It's uh, looking at uh, some various case studies of organised crime groups who have who have become like criminal warlords. In, in uh, a couple in Mexico, one in Jamaica, uh, one in uh, Brazil, one in Colombia, and one in Central America in uh, El Salvador, Honduras area, uh, and looking at the other case studies and taking these ideas forward about the role of these groups of the 21st century how come the Americas is the most violent, uh, homicidal part of the world 
uh, you know, what's led to those and what can we do about it. Terrific. Look, I'd um, be very happy to talk to you again when that one comes out as well, so keep me informed on that. That'll be a pleasure, yeah. yeah. Uh, most definitely. Great. Okay, Ian Grillo, thank you very much for the interview. Thank you very much.